Well, friends, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. I'm going to read briefly from Genesis chapter 50. This will provide a little bit of context for our sermon this morning, which is from Acts chapter 23. We're continuing in our series from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 23. But before we go over there, let's look briefly at Genesis chapter 50. I'm going to read verses 15 through 21. Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin. For they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Amen. Upon the death of their father, Jacob, Joseph's brothers are greatly afraid. They're afraid first that Joseph is an all-powerful figure in Egypt. They have seen the extent of his power, his glory, his majesty, that Joseph were to but snap his fingers and the 11 of them would die and no one would ask any questions. But secondly, they fear that the only thing that has kept that all-powerful might of Joseph from descending upon their heads has been his respect for their father. And now that the father is gone, they fear that Joseph's wrath will come with a fury. But Joseph very famously speaks to them. And he reassures them twice. Verse 19 and verse 21, he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. What is the source of peace in a fear-filled world? Joseph's answer is found in verses 19 and 20. I am not God. And what God does, he does well. What was meant for evil has turned out to be good. We see, my friends, that we have a God, as was said by Augustine long ago, who is so good, he takes evil and makes good out of it. Dear friends, with this in mind, turn to Acts chapter 23. We're going to look this morning at Acts chapter 23, verses 11 through 35. 
Acts chapter 23, verses 11 through 35, roughly the second two-thirds of this uh, chapter. Acts chapter 23, hear again the word of the Lord. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So... When Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts. To set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner Claudius, Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by him. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's 
praetorium. Amen and amen. I have never been much of a baker. I still am fairly lousy in the kitchen. Frankly, I'm kind of banned from it, actually. I'm allowed to go in and do dishes. But my mom was an excellent baker. And as a little boy, I learned this fascinating phenomenon of chemistry. That you can take some of the most disgusting individual ingredients known to man, mix them together, light them on fire, and make the most marvelously delicious things. How many of you have tasted vanilla extract? I mean, how many of you dip your finger in the bowl of flour to taste the flour before you mix it up? I mean, some of these really yucky individual things, when combined in the right proportion at the right time and in the right way, produce some amazingly yummy things. And beloved, our God is a master baker. He takes some amazingly difficult things in life mixes them together in the right proportion at the right time, and produces a lifetime of wonder and marvel. Friends, Jesus uses the bad stuff to do some really good stuff. Your Jesus knows how to use all the bad things in life to make a really good life. Your Jesus uses the bad stuff to make some really good stuff. My friends, let us love cheerfully. Let us love boldly. Let us expect all things will work together for good for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about this for a moment with me. Let's go through this little story of the life of Paul. It begins the night in which he is in prison in Jerusalem. He is there because he has dedicated his life to bringing Gentiles into fellowship with God. But the Jews throughout his earthly ministry are resolved that they would rather give up fellowship with God than bring Jew Gentiles into fellowship with themselves. This hatred and antagonism has so intensified that the Romans must place Paul under arrest to keep him safe. There in the prison in Jerusalem, Paul has this extraordinary comfort in verse 11. Jesus appears to him and stands beside him. He shows his solidarity and his sympathy for the Apostle Paul in giving him presence in the midst of his suffering. But what is more, he commands Paul to cheer up. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. He roots this command in a promise. Paul, you will bear witness to me in Rome. You will arrive safe in Rome and you will talk about me. You will bear witness there. Notice, my friends, that Jesus does not command Paul to bear witness in Rome. He commands him to cheer up. He tells him, as a matter of fact... You will be my witness in Rome. It is an echo of Acts 1 8. 
in which Jesus said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utter ends of the earth. It is an echo of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. Jesus doesn't command us to be salty. Jesus doesn't command us to illuminate. Jesus tells us we are salt. We are light. We will bear witness. The question is, what do we say? As a congregation of Jesus Christ, Cambridge gets a witness from us. Boston hears about Jesus from us. It is an inevitable condition of being a congregation of Jesus Christ. The question is, what are they getting? What do they hear? What do we testify to? Do we tell them about the extraordinary love of God in Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing? Is that what they hear? Do they hear how he who gave the law put himself under the law and perfectly fulfilled it? Do they hear of how he considered his flesh and his blood not something to be held onto, but something to be crucified for sinners? Do they hear of this relentless love that chases down sinners and brings them into fellowship, says, welcome home? Is this what they hear, friends? This is the witness to which we are called. That he has said to us, you will bear witness. We can bank on this promise. But even as we fix our hearts on the certainty of this promise, friends, notice well, there is surely much opposition to this promise. The promises of Jesus do not advance unopposed. We see in verses 12 through 15 a rather potent opposition arise. Over 40 men come together in a conspiracy. They lay upon themselves a great oath. They will neither eat nor drink until they have killed Paul. There is an intensity to their animosity. There is a fervency to their plan. They want him dead, and they want him dead yesterday. They are resolved, and they are dedicated to this purpose. And they've even come up with a plausible way to do it. They go to the chief priests and they say, summon the Sanhedrin, hold a second hearing. The tribune will give in to this. Remember, it was his idea originally. He had wanted the Sanhedrin to hold a hearing in which they could determine what accusations against Paul were coming forth. He'll do this. It's, it's a plausible plan. And so they set it before the Sanhedrin. Bring him down for a hearing, and we will murder him along the way. My friends, we can see in this that the promises of Jesus are opposed by furious and competent enemies, chief of which in our day is Satan himself. We have an evil one whom Scripture compares to a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's not the cute little outfit you see bouncing around at the end of October. He is a furious being 
Seeking at all points to consume the joy of the church. Seeking at all points to evaporate and eviscerate the love of God in Christ in our hearts and lives. He has schemes and plots and plans. And my friends, we are not much match for him. He is a furious enemy. But my friends, he's not the only one we have to face. Just last night, I was standing on the streets on Antrim Street with a bunch of my neighbors. And they were lamenting the drift in Cambridge towards super expensive housing and the attraction that that has become to developers. And as they were lamenting the encroach of developers, a silence settled on the whole circle as they suddenly looked at me and said, have they asked you about your church building? To which I smiled and said, oh, every week. I hear from them quite regularly. And then I assured them that we ignore them quite fastidiously too. My friends, those who worship at the idol of the almighty dollar want this building emptied. They want it to be housing, not worship. We have enemies. We have those who want us silenced. Those who do not want to hear the psalm sung on Sunday morning. Those who want to rob us of our affection for one another. There are many enemies. And I fear, my friends, we must not overlook, of course, the one we find in the mirror each morning. Perhaps the most deadly foe of all whose schemes are most successful. How many times have you tricked yourself out of righteousness and into sin? Because you just know which buttons to push. Because you are your own worst enemy. My friends, in the face of such opposition, in the face of such furious foes, what hope do we have that the promise of Jesus will be fulfilled? What hope does the Apostle Paul have that he gets out of Jerusalem alive, that he gets to Rome and bears witness? On the one hand, he has the promise of Jesus Christ, that he's going to Rome and he's going to preach the gospel there. On the other hand, he has all these enemies and all their wicked schemes. What is he about to do? What hope could he have? My friends, we face our like manner challenges. My friends, what hope do you have? Let me give you two. First, Jesus is all wise. Second, Jesus is all powerful. In verses 16 through 21, we see that Jesus is all wise. He is able to keep his promises and to fulfill his purposes in spite of all opposition because he is wiser than all his foes. Notice that in the midst of all their scheming and all their planning as, as these 40 plus men come together with the high priests in the Sanhedrin and they gather into their secret council. Guess who's among them? Verse 16. Paul's nephew. Who let him in? Let's make it a little worse. Turn over to verse 21. Paul's nephew is speaking to the tribune. And he says, Do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. 
men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed you. Notice this line. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. Who lets Paul's nephew in the secret murder plot? And who makes him the messenger to the tribune? He's the go-between. Who did this? Surely Jesus. And only Jesus. What is more, as Paul's nephew comes to the barracks, verse 16, he gains entrance to Paul's presence himself. Who can walk into a Roman barracks right after a riot and walk freely up to the prisoner and just speak to him? I mean, I've got at least two military guys here, right? What happens to a post or a base after a riot? Can you just walk in? You cannot. And yet, this nephew of Paul is not only welcome in the secret councils of the Sanhedrin, he's welcome in the Roman barracks right after a riot. He walks right up to Paul, shares his news, and Paul turns to one of the two centurions and says, take him to the tribune, he has something to say. This tribune has no information whatsoever. And he is just scandalously compliant with this plan. Oh, yeah, sure, I'll just bring this total stranger to the tribune. He has something to say. And the centurion brings him to the tribune. And the tribune is very busy. Like there's been a riot in the city. He's got to keep the peace. He's got soldiers out and about. He's got to know where they are and what they're doing. He is so busy, so stressed, so distracted that he takes this total stranger by the hand and pulls him aside for a private audience. Is this not amazing? He sits down with him and says, what is it that you have to tell me? Who gave this nephew such incredible access to both the Sanhedrin and the Romans? Who made this centurion so compliant with Paul's wishes? Who made this tribune so trusting to this young man's report? My friends, only Jesus. Only Jesus. He is a master tactician. He is a genius in strategy. He is all wise, knowing the schemes of our enemies, knowing the intentions of our thoughts and our hearts, and able to thwart them at every turn. He is all-knowing and all-wise. All the secret schemes that are going to bring down his purposes fall short because he knows them before they have come to pass. It reminds me of the First Kings chapter 6, one of my favorite little vignettes from the life of Elisha. The king of Syria makes three different battle plans for fighting Israel. And each time, Israel clearly knows in advance what the secret battle plan is and thwarts him. Finally, in vexation, the king of Syria says to his military council, Who among you is telling my secrets to the king of Israel? And they say, Oh, no, no, it's Elisha, the prophet. What you whisper in your bedroom, he tells in the king of Israel's courtroom. My friends, we have a king who knows all the schemes of the enemy, who knows all the plans of our foes. 
He is all wise and sufficiently able to thwart their schemes. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You can love courageously, cheerfully. You have an all-wise Jesus who is never taken by surprise. You know those unexpected turn of events that shake you? You just didn't see it coming. That never happens to Jesus. He saw it coming. And he's 400 steps ahead of it. He already knows. He knows what you need. And he has already put in place what you need. Jesus is not only all wise, he is all powerful. We see this in verses 22 through 24. The commander, having received from the young man the report that indeed there is a threat against the life of Paul, tells the young man to go back to the Sanhedrin, but to tell no one that this has been revealed. Instead, he turns to his two centurions. We've learned from an earlier verse that he only has two centurions. He tells them to prepare 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 cavalry officers, horsemen, to be ready to depart. The centurion, if you know your Latin, is a commander of a hundred. That means that this tribune is employing every single soldier he's got. This is what we affectionately refer to as overkill. He has unleashed the full strength and power of his Roman cohort. Every horse, every spear, every soldier is set in motion. This is total commitment from this tribune. In like manner, he says that they are to depart the third hour of the night. He is wasting no time. They have enough time to get ready, and they're gone. There is haste and urgency in this plan. He even provides a horse for Paul, that there should be no delay in the execution of his plan, that he should indeed come safely to the governor, Felix. This is a martial unit of the Roman Empire. And Jesus sort of just flicks his finger and says, Here, go protect my man. He pulls the full weight and power of the Roman Empire, as existed in Jerusalem, to defend the Apostle Paul. One little guy, threatened by 40 little assassins, gets the whole strength of the Roman Empire unleashed to his defense. Who would do this? Jesus would. Jesus would. He is all-powerful, bringing up empires in order to build his church, tearing down kingdoms in order to build his church. You see, all the Caesars who thought they were God on earth were but puppets in the hands of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They came and went by his leave. They belong to him as instruments to the end of his people. And this is certainly not the first, nor will it be the last, time we see Paul protected by his Roman citizenship. But the length to which this tribune goes in haste, in a superlative effort, in order to protect Paul, is an amazing providential demonstration of the love of Christ for Paul. That he would move in empire to fulfill his purpose, to keep his promise. My friends, you need not be afraid. 
This last week, I read a report from House of Promise. That's up in Lowell, Massachusetts. They spoke of a young lady named Sinai. She had come as a child in 2003. By a single mom, she was brought. She grew up in that house, learning about Christ, putting her faith in Jesus. And when she turned 18 and reached her senior year of high school, which was this year, she decided God would have her go to Gordon. But she couldn't afford it. And so she prayed about it. And a few weeks later, Jesus said, here's your four-year scholarship. And she's good to go. Going to be a classmate. What a cool story. How many of you have a hundred of those stories? Jesus' arm is not short. Jesus' hand is not weak. Jesus is an all-powerful God. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He can meet the need. He can move empires and kingdoms. He can build roads and bridges. He can bring about all that he needs to bring about in order to build his church, fulfill his purpose, keep his promises. Friends, what hope do you have when you see all the opposition around us that this church lasts, that this church thrives? Here's your hope. You have a Jesus who is all-wise. You have a Jesus who is all-powerful. In the last two portions of our story, we see Jesus flex his muscles. We see Jesus employ his wisdom. Notice the first source of wisdom and strength is the tribune himself. We learn his name in verse 26. He is Claudius Lysias. He writes to the most excellent governor, Felix, in a very Roman soldier manner. His manner of writing is fitting for a Roman soldier in two ways. First, it is very brief and terse. Like a soldier, he just gets to the point and gets out of the point. But secondly, it's full of, shall we say, um, loose handling of the truth. So the first line, verse 27. There was this guy and the Jews were attacking him and I learned he was a Roman and I rushed in there and saved his life. Yay me. That's not exactly how it happened, is it? In fact, he was going to flog him because he didn't know he was a Roman, didn't he? Yeah, he kind of skips over all that. He, he, he push, push, puts it in a very positive light, as positively as he can make it. In verse 28, he further says, And since I wanted to get to the bottom of this matter, I called in that Jewish council and I brought him down there to be examined so that I could find out what was going on here. That's true, but said in a rather positive way. Then in verse 29, when I found out that he was accused about things about their law, nothing deserving of death or chains, dot, dot, dot. Notice he didn't finish what he did upon receiving that. Because you know what he did upon receiving that? He stuck him back in chains. He didn't actually render the verdict not guilty, which is what this evidence should have produced. He didn't put Paul at liberty, which is what he should have done. He's actually kind of avoiding the fact that he chickened out. And instead, in verse 30, when I found that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and commanded his accusers to state before you the charges be against you, before him against you. 
Claudius Lysias is ducking responsibility. He has soldiers sufficient to keep Paul safe. His plan is to get Paul out of there as fast as possible. He has a responsibility as a tribune to execute Roman law. He would prefer to defer it to the governor. Claudius Lysias is not acting out of Paul's best interest. He is acting out of his own selfish desires. And my friends, in this we see the wisdom and power of God. That Jesus Christ can use the selfish and sinful interests of others to do tremendous good, to bring about his purposes and his plans, to draw his people into the full intentions of his heart and desire. My friends, we need not fear the selfishness and sinfulness that is unleashed around us. Jesus is a match for this world's mess. He is all-wise, he is all-powerful, and he will employ the wickedness of the wicked for the blessing of the righteous. We see it here. Claudius Lysias is sending Paul to Caesarea in order to protect his own reputation, in order to establish his own well-being, and in that self-interest, he unwittingly serves Jesus' promise in verse 11. We see that most prominently in the final verses. Verses 31 through 35. The soldiers do as they're commanded. Because you know what? Sorry, guys. That's what soldiers do. They do what they're commanded. They follow orders. That's what the soldiers do. They get him to Antipatris by night. The horsemen carry him along to the barracks in Caesarea. They deliver the letter. They deliver Paul. They're both presented to the governor. And you know what? He's kind of in the same boat as the tribune. He reads the letter and he goes, wait, what province are you from? This is a way to get him out of the situation. Ah, if you're from one of those other Roman provinces, then you have your own governor and I can send you away and you're not my problem. Paul says Cilicia and the governor goes, oh, no, you are my problem. Okay. I will hear you when your accusers come. They put up Paul in the Herod's Praetorium in verse 35. It's prison, but it's a pretty nice prison. Herod's Praetorium lived pretty well. They had decent quarters. So he can't go anywhere. He's not free, but he's fairly comfortable in the grand scheme of things. What is most important in, in this entire passage is found in verse 33. They came to Caesarea. Do you know why that's important? Because you can't sail from Jerusalem, a landlocked city, to Rome. You have to go to the biggest port in the area. And which ships sail from Rome constantly. Indeed, it is the capital of the Roman province where the Roman governor's palace is. It's Caesarea. Do you see the genius and power of Jesus? A Jewish riot, a murderous plot... A selfish Roman tribune. And all of them conspire to get Paul one step closer to Jesus' promise. To go to the exact city he had to go to. To be brought within a stone's throw of the ship which he must board in order to go to Rome. Jesus is keeping his promise. Through the opposition to his promise. All his enemies' conspiracies are but instruments for him to fulfill his purposes. All 
that they have sought to bring about has come to the opposite end because our Jesus is all-wise and all-powerful. As I was working on this sermon, I was wedged this week between the work of the session and the work of synod. And I spent a lot of this week being worried. Worried about the work of our session. Worried about this sermon. Worried about synod. And at one point during the week, I was sitting with a friend who reminded me of the priest, Eli, who trembled for the ark. And my friend looked at me and said, do not tremble for the ark. Your Jesus knows how to build his church. Your Jesus knows how to take care of his church. Your Jesus is all-wise and all-powerful. Your Jesus uses the bad stuff to do really good stuff. Do not be afraid. Love with cheer, with courage. We shall, my friends, be in Christ more than conquerors. We shall in Christ triumph over all this opposition that makes us tremble and drown in worry and in sorrow. Dear friends, Jesus is all-wise, all-powerful. Jesus uses the bad stuff to do really good stuff. Let us love with courage. Let us love with cheer. Do not be afraid. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful little story in which we see so clearly the wisdom and power of our Jesus. We thank you for his presence when we are in suffering, when we are in sin. We thank you that he is a God who comes to his people and stands beside us. We give you thanks that he speaks to us in his scriptures and sets before us his precious promises that we might have tremendous hope in the darkest days. Our Father, we pray that you would forgive us that we are so easily shaken by our opposition and that we are so easily waylaid by our own enemies. And Father, fortify us today with that faith that believes in the power and wisdom of Jesus Christ. Father, settle our hearts and minds today that we would find that indeed the peace of Jesus Christ guards and guides and governs us. We give you thanks, O God, that it is so, that in Jesus we have this great blessing and pray that throughout this week this blessing would be ours in abundance to the praise of your precious name. In that name we pray, amen.